This is Truth Encounter, and thank you for joining us today as we continue our study of Ephesians with our study leader, Dave Wurtzen. We usually don't think of going to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 for the Christmas story, but let's take another look. Did you know that there's wars in Toyland? Walmart and Super Target have declared war because Walmart and Super Target say if you come in, you'll probably buy dog biscuits for your dog. You'll probably buy a bunch of groceries, maybe a turkey for Christmas morning, and they'll cover the cost and they, they want to get more of that toy market. It struck me, here we're supposed to be celebrating the birthday of the Prince of Peace and the whole society in the toy industry is at war. But I, it got me to thinking about war and Christmas. It's supposed to be peace and Christmas, and yet the toys industry is, is war and Christmas. But as I opened up to Ephesians 4, which is not my usual place to get the Christmas story, I found out that the Apostle Paul talks about some Christmas themes in Ephesians 4. He talks, first of all, about Jesus' descent from heaven to this earth, which is the Christmas story, and we want to talk about that today. He also talks about a major theme of Christmas. We think about receiving gifts. And usually when you have a birthday, you receive gifts. Only at Christmas, since I've been a little kid, we get the gifts. But you know, it's not so unbiblical for you to receive gifts. Because Jesus is such a great Savior that when you go to his birthday party, you find out that yes, you need to give gifts of praise to him and gifts of service to him. But interesting enough, our Savior is so generous and so gracious that on his birthday, he gives gifts to you. The very first thing I want you to see today in Ephesians chapter 4 is that every single one of you have received a Christmas gift because Jesus has descended and then because he's done something in his time on earth and then because he's ascended to heaven, He's poured out gifts upon every one of you. You might be sitting there feeling like, man, you know, I can't do anything in the body of Christ, and what does Jesus need me for? And I think about my life, and I haven't done anything for Jesus. And I, If you're thinking like that, I want you to listen real carefully today, because we desperately need you. We need every single one of you to play your part. Some of you put your horn down, you put your flute down, you put your clarinet down, you put your sax down. And I want you to listen to me today, because we need every single one of you. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. It's a strange passage to look at the Christmas story. But as we look at verse 7, we begin to pick up some of the Christmas themes. And the very first theme, and I want you to underline it, every single one of you in Christ's family, if you have come to know Jesus as your Savior, you might have come to know Jesus as your Savior on Wednesday night at Awana. You might have received Jesus last Sunday. There was a prisoner that received Jesus yesterday at the Bill Glass Crusade. You know, as soon as they received Jesus, you know what happened? God's Holy Spirit came to live in their life. He created a new person, and he gave them a gift. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Look what it says. It says, but to each one of us, how many of us? Tim Wallace received the gift. He's the only one that received a gift. He received a gift to go to Dallas Seminary to learn how to work with teenagers. And Tim Wallace received a gift, but all the rest of you are, are out of it. Right? Is that what you read? No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say, you know, that just Dave Wurtzen received a gift. How many of us received a gift? 
All of us. Each one of us. Everyone say that together. Each one of us. Say it again. Each one of us. Are you part of the each one of us? Yes. Every single one of, of you that's received Christ in your heart are one of those each one of us. It says to each one of us, grace. And the word grace is the word for gift. Paul uses the word that is the word for grace. And in this context, we could say each one of us has received a gracious gift. Grace was given to us as Christ apportioned it. What Paul is saying is that every one of you have been graced. And in this context, he's using the idea of grace. Say, oh, yeah, I've been received forgiveness of my sins. And that's part of his grace. And that's true. You've received your position in Christ. You become a son or daughter of God. That's Christ's grace to you. We learn in Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. So your whole salvation is a grace. But do you ever stop and think of it? What I'm doing right now is a grace. Some of you say, well, man, I could never do what you do. Like, how do you ever get up there and, and teach us and remember what you're going to say? And how do you come up with illustrations and everything? And, and you can say, well, I could never do that. Well, some of you could. Because some of you are going to find out that you've been graced with a gift that I have. And where does all that come from? I'm standing before you today, not because of my effort, not because of my performance, not because of anything that I've done, not because of my training. But I'm standing before you because of grace. Amen? Do you understand that? You know what that means? Every one of you have received a grace from the Lord. And you know what grace means? Grace means that, that you receive it totally undeserved. I didn't choose to be a teacher. You see, I didn't say, well, man, you know, I want to be a teacher in the body of Christ. And that's what I choose to be. And I'm going to work hard. And I'm going to study hard. And sure, I've done all those things. But you know what? If the Holy Spirit hadn't graced me, it's over. And some of you have been raised in church traditions where what I do this morning is the way you really serve the Lord. Some of you were little boys in your tradition and you felt the call of God. You were called into ministry and you felt the call to ministry was to do what I do. But you found out that when you tried to speak publicly, just nothing happened. No ideas came. People didn't respond to you. In fact, you were just boring in your speech class in your ninth grade year. And yet you found out, man, you could work on diesel trucks like nobody's business. Man, you got excited about working about on diesel engines. You wanted to learn everything there was to know about it. And so you put your call to ministry to the side. Because you weren't graced with a mouth gift. So you feel that you're not graced in the kingdom of God. And so now you feel like, I'm not really serving the Lord. I want you to know that every single one of you is a unique person with unique talents and unique gifts. And you've been given by Jesus grace. And that grace equals a gift or gifts that he wants you to use to help the body of Christ grow strong. And if you drop out that particular element becomes weak in the body of Christ. The very first thing I want you to nail down, every single one of us in this room have been graced with a ministry gift. And the word ministry means to serve. It doesn't mean to do what I do professionally. I'm a professional reverend. I hate even that thinking because it's so far away. The Apostle Paul is speaking in a day before there were reverends, before there were ordinations, before there were seminaries. And he's telling every single one of you as a child of God that you have been graced. 
You have received a gift. And that should start spinning some wheels. What is my gift? What has the Lord given me an ability to do? And I'm going to talk to you about how you can kind of discover that. But the first thing we nail it down at this Christmas season is as you think about Jesus and celebrating his birthday, Jesus doesn't have any of his children that when his family gets done opening up the Christmas gifts, you're left behind. And some of you have had the idea that everybody under the, under the Christmas tree, there was a gift for everybody, but you got left out. And that's not true. Jesus doesn't forget one of his children. Every single one of you have received gifts. You say, well, Dave, when did this happen? Well, it happened, or how did this happen? And Paul does a really strange thing. He bases this idea of Jesus gracing us with a gift and apportioning them out according to his will. That's his idea, that he's like a great giver and he's the one that's handing them out, not Santa Claus, but Jesus is handing out to every one of us his gift. Paul bases this in an Old Testament passage. Look at the word. He says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 68. And some of you, uh, if, if someone's really sharp, they'll say, you think there's errors in the Bible? And some of you say, oh, absolutely not. There's no errors in the Bible. Well, if you look at this verse, it looks like there's an error in the Bible. For example, I'm going to play Jewish rabbi for a minute, Okay. I'm a Jewish rabbi, and the Apostle Paul is quoting here from Psalm 68. And let's turn back there to Psalm 68. And as we look at this psalm in its original context, we find out that the Apostle Paul has done some really weird things with this verse in Psalm 68. Because it looks like in Ephesians, when Paul talks about it, it looks like when he, Jesus, ascended on high... He led captives in his train. It's the idea that Jesus has conquered a great enemy and he has given gifts to men. They're going to reach out to us. But when we open up to the psalm, things are reversed. In fact, as this psalm begins, we find out that it's talking about the Lord God. The Lord God of the Old Testament. And what it pictures him, it pictures him on Mount Sinai. And in Psalm 68, God comes down off of Mount Sinai and he marches up with Israel into the Holy Land. And he defeats the Canaanites. He defeats his enemies. He defeats those that are camped all around him. Uh, For example, you look at verse 12, it talks about kings and armies flee in haste. In camps, men divide the plunder. You talk about in verse 14, it says, when the Almighty scattered the kings... It was like a snow fallen on Zebulun. It says in this psalm, in verse 22, the Lord says, I will bring them from Bashan. I will bring them from the depth of the sea that you may plunge their feet in the blood of your foes while the tongues of your dogs have their share. Good night. What is it talking about? Well, the picture here is like this violent warfare. And the Old Testament context is that the Lord has come down like he met Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses came down off the mountain. He marched with the armies of Israel. And under Joshua, they went into the land and they conquered the Canaanites. That the Lord had given 400 years for the Canaanites to turn away from their sin. And now the Lord is saying, as the judge of all the earth, I'm going to use my physical earthly people to conquer these enemies that are cursing me, that are worshiping immorality, that are doing a lot of violent things. Now, right in the midst of this psalm that's celebrating 
this victory of Yahweh, the victory of the Lord over the Canaanites, focusing specifically on David's victory in Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem was right in the heart of God's promised land. And the Jebusites were some Canaanites who were the, some of the strongest people among the Canaanites. And the original conquest didn't destroy the Jebusites at all. Joshua wasn't able to do it. Hundreds of years really went by from General Joshua in the 1400s until David, about 1,000 A.D. 400 years goes by. And the children of Israel still haven't taken Zion, which is going to be the capital where the Lord chooses to place his name. You with me? David is able to send his general Joab through the water system. He's able to get inside the city. And David's army, for the first time, conquers the Jebusite Canaanites. And David marches in with his armies. And all the women dance and they play tambourines and they sing and shout. And that's what this psalm is about. And David pictures, and he writes this psalm, if you look at verse 18, it says, when you ascended on high. And in Psalm 68, the ascent is when Yahweh went up to Jerusalem, which is up in the mountains. Yahweh ascends with the armies on Israel of Israel. He ascends and takes the capital city of Jerusalem. It says you led capt- captives in your train. The captives are the Jebusites. And all the kings of the Canaanites that have now been subjected. Now, when you're a general and a king in the ancient world, and those two positions often went together, what would happen is your enemies would then pay you tribute. They would give you gifts. And the word that's used when it says, And you receive gifts from men, even from the rebellious, from those, O Lord my God, that dwell there, what it's saying is it pictures God, this great king, conquering these enemies of God. And earlier in the Psalms, it talked about those that rebel against God. It talked about these rebellious people that dwell there and the great victory that God's going to have over them. What has Paul done? In Psalm 68, Yahweh receives gifts from his enemies. Yahweh doesn't give gifts. Yahweh receives gifts. So if I'm a rabbi, I said, you believers have changed the Psalm. Because in the Psalm... The Lord God is the king. Mount Zion is the mountain he goes up to. And the tribute that is given comes from the former enemies of God that have now been subjected to him. The Apostle Paul changed this whole thing around and he made Jesus the one who gives gifts. So therefore, the New Testament messes up the Old Testament, right? It looks like a pretty strong case. But you know what? As you read Psalm 68 carefully, you find out, and I found this out again and again and again, when I think carefully about the way Paul uses the Old Testament. He doesn't use the Old Testament mechanically. He doesn't use it just like a rote correspondence. But he deeply understands the meaning of the psalm. In fact, if you look at Psalm 68, it closes... It says in verse 34, Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is to the skies. You are awesome, O God, in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. The psalm ends with who's the giver at the end of the psalm. Tell me, who's the giver at the end of the psalm? God is the giver. 
In fact, as we read the psalm carefully, we find out that there's even a hint that those that were rebellious, those that were the enemies of God, have now joined some of those who were rebellious have now joined God. In fact, when we look even more carefully at this psalm, we find out that God is the one who gives shelter and he gives homes to the widows and to the orphans. He's the one who gives victory to his people and enables his people to come in and to be able to have prosperity. We find out in the Psalms that he is like pictured as the God that brings the rain. It pictures like a great thunderstorm and it pictures Yahweh being the author of that thunderstorm that brings rain and brings the fertility to the land and it closes with his almighty God giving the gifts to his people. Now what have you learned in the book of Ephesians? This is the incredible thing. In the Old Testament, the Christmas story, the story of God's victory over his enemies is a very earthly story. The story is of a small group of enslaved people that come up out of the land of Egypt, they go into the land of Canaan, and their almighty God beats all these pagan gods, and then their almighty God blesses them. But we learn in the book of Ephesians that us Gentiles were often on the outskirts. We were on the outer rim of those blessings. And the good news we've been learning about in the book of Ephesians is that suddenly, because of something very important, that we have now, who used to be outside, now we've been brought up close and personal. What the Apostle Paul says is that the Old Testament story of God's victory over his enemies was only a symbol. It was only a picture of a much greater victory that the Messiah that God's going to send is going to have. You say, Dave, where'd you get that from? Look what Paul does in the next verse. He says in verse 9, he begins to interpret for us Psalm 68 and the verse that he quotes. He says, what does he ascended mean? What do I mean when I talk about the one that's ascending? He says, first of all, it means that whoever I'm talking about descended to the lower parts of the earth. Now, stick with me, because this is where there's all kinds of strange interpretations. This is where we get in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into Sheol. Very quickly, in the second and third centuries, there began to be a doctrine that Jesus, when he was crucified, descended into hell. In fact, in the Middle Ages, they even start developing all kinds of folklore about how Satan beat him and, and the fighting with the demons and all this kind of strange stuff about Jesus descending into hell and somehow Jesus vanquishes the enemies of hell. God allows his son to be captured by Satan for a while and then in some of the elaborate theories, Jesus pays off through his death. He pays a ransom to Satan and Satan therefore had to set him free and all kinds of stuff like that. And that's why in the Apostles' Creed, sometimes we read, he descended to Sheol, and there's a lot of confusion about that. You say, well, Dave, how do you, how do you know what it means? It says he descended in the lower parts of the earth. When we carefully look at this phrase, the idea here of the lower parts of the earth, the lower part of the earth is the grave. It doesn't mean Hades. In fact, the Bible, like Jesus, talks a lot about Hades, talks a lot about hell. And there's words that are used. And the Apostle Paul wanted to say he descended into Hades. He descended to hell. He could have just said that. But he didn't say that. He said he descended into the lower part of the earth. One, it's a picture of Jesus' incarnation. One of the things I want all of you dads to teach your kids, Jesus wasn't just a great prophet. 
You see, Moses was born of his mother and father, and he had to be protected from the Pharaoh and the bulrushes and all that kind of stuff with the ark. But you know what? Moses didn't exist before he was born into his precious home. But you know what? It says Jesus descended. You know what that means is the Bible's very clear, and you can reject it, but the Bible's very clear that Jesus lived in heaven, high above the present universe. And he descended to this earth. That's what the incarnation is. When Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, he didn't come into existence. He has always been forever and ever and ever the second person of the Trinity. And that'll help you understand. Like yesterday in prison, an Islamic guy asked me, he said, well, you know, the Bible says that no one has ever seen God at any time, and God lives in, 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 in an unapproachable light, and there's no way that, you know, that no one has ever seen God. And yet, I said, but, but have you looked at some other passages? He said, no. I said, well, have you ever looked at the passage where three men came to talk things over with Abraham, and those three men suddenly turn out to be two angels and God himself? How do you handle that? How do you handle Daniel, for example, with his three buddies? His three buddies get thrown in the furnace, and suddenly there's a fourth that's like a son of the gods that's in the fire with him. How do you explain that? How do you explain the Psalms when David says to his Lord, sit at my right hand, and David writes about his son that existed before him? How do you explain that? He said, well, I hadn't thought about that. I said, well, you need to think about it. Because as an Islamic person, you believe the Old Testament is part of your scripture. And the Old Testament is very clear that you can't see God, but you can see him. How do you answer that? Well, God the Father is a spirit, and he dwells in unapproachable light, and he's the invisible God. But the second person of the Trinity is the invisible God made visible. So our God is a God that you can't see and you can see. And the second person of our God, the second person of the Trinity, of the oneness of God, the unity of God as the blessed Son of God, who lived before the Virgin Mary conceived him in her womb. And God fashioned a body for him, and Jesus took upon a body just like you have, and that's when he descended to earth. He became a baby like us. The lower parts of the earth refer to the idea, it talks about him being placed in the grave. You say, Dave, how do you know it's not talking about a descendant to hell? Because of this. In the book of Ephesians, where has Paul said that our victory was won? Does Paul say our victory over sin, death, and the devil? Does Paul say that victory was won in the grave? In a battle with Satan in hell? In chapter 1, it says, you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, you've received forgiveness. What does Paul focuses you on? He focuses you on the cross. Everybody say that with me. He focuses you on the cross. In John's gospel, at the very end of the crucifixion scene, what does Jesus holler out? It is, everybody, it is finished. This is real important for the gospel. The victory that our Savior has over sin and death and the evil one is when he suffered on the cross. The cross is your focus. The cross is where the penalty for your sin was objectively paid for. 
And, as, and you say, Dave, how do you know that? Because when you study the book of Ephesians, there's nothing else in all the rest of the book about some weird battle and something like the Matrix, something like the Star Wars, this incredible battle that God's Messiah has with the forces of darkness. And you have this great conflict between evil and good and all that's going on. The Bible say that on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, the Son of God, who used to exist in heaven, he descended to this earth, became a baby, and he went to the cross. When you read the Gospels and you look at the comparative amount of space it's given, the space is focused. Everything focuses on the cross, where our sins were paid for, where the violent, murderous death of Jesus took place, but somehow God made him his Passover lamb. And that's objectively where the victory was given over Satan. And he was truly dead, which is the idea of him being placed in the grave. That's why 1 Corinthians says, the gospel is this, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, and then he was buried, and then he rose again the third day. When did he descend? It's when he descended to this earth, when he died for us, and then when he truly was dead, he was placed in the grave. But it doesn't end there. What does it mean that he descended into the grave, the lower parts of the earth? It also means that he ascended. Look what it said. He said, what does it mean that he ascended? Mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? He who descended into the grave, you might say, is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole earth. Now, this is really important. That's why I'm camping out here. Because that totally contradicts a ton of popular thinking about Jesus these days. The common thing is there's a lot of different prophets, and Jesus is one of the prophets. And my Islamic friend that I talked about yesterday wanted to say, well, David, I respect you. You follow prophet Jesus. I follow prophet Muhammad. I said, you know, there's elements of truth in that. As I look at the Gospels, Jesus is a prophet. He's a greater prophet than even John the Baptist, who was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. So one of the ways you can look at Jesus, he was a prophet. There's no problem there. But you know what? He was more than a prophet. It's really important because you need to know who you're following. Notice it says he descended, but he also ascended. Where did Jesus ascend? This is very important for your eternal salvation. He ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. Muhammad is not pictured as ascending to the right hand. So if you're Islamic or if you're, if you're from that background, then if I ask you the question, what's going to happen to you when you die? You think that you're going to say, I followed the Prophet Muhammad. I did what the Prophet Muhammad wanted to do. Well, you need to ask yourself really honestly, what does the Quran even teach about Muhammad and his position in the universe? And then what does the Bible teach you about Jesus' position in the universe? And you're going to find out that they're not just agreeing with each other. This is a great conflict. If you're from a Jewish background, if you're Orthodox Jew, you're going to hold, I follow Moses, I try to keep his laws. So what you're telling me is when you die, you're going to stand before Yahweh. You won't be able to see him because he's the great invisible God. But he'll evaluate your life and he'll say, well, if you obeyed the Torah, if you kept the tenets of Judaism, then somehow you're going to be there. So what you're holding is you don't have any intermediary. You don't have anyone. You're just trusting in your own good works. That's the way all religion is. Now, this is what the scripture is saying. The moment you die... You're going to be face-to-face with the Son of God. And he's either your Savior, who's at the right hand of God, which means he has the authority, he has the power, he has the might. The New Testament's claiming that this Son of God that used to live with the Father did come to this earth, did pay the penalty for our sin, was put in the lower parts of the earth, was put into the grave, he rose again from the dead. 
And that's why I trust him. And that's why Paul wants you to trust him. Because as he ascended to heaven, he's now in the position of power in the universe. So what does it mean if you've trusted in Jesus, when you pray to Jesus, when you cry out for Jesus to help you, he has the authority, he has the power to meet all of your needs. He has the power to bless your life. He has the power to bless his church because he is in the position of power and authority. And it's a great, great conflict. And this Savior that's at the right hand of God doesn't tell us today that we should grab a sword. He doesn't tell us that we should fight physically. But he says that we fight with the armament of the Spirit. That's what Paul wants us to understand. And Paul goes on and develops. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he didn't just sit there and, and wait, but he poured out gifts upon you. That's his next statement. Look what he says. He says, when Jesus ascended to heaven in order to fill all the universe, and the idea there is that Jesus is the epitome of the universe. That Jesus is the ruler of the universe. That he is the one that completes all of God's creation because he's also the creator. There's all that idea. When you look at a thunderstorm, that thunderstorm is pointing you to Jesus and his grandeur. When you look at the vastness of the ocean, it's pointing you to the grandeur of Jesus. He says, it was he. Who is the he? It was Jesus that gave gifts to every one of us. But the Apostle Paul in this passage focuses on some gifted leaders, some gifts that relate to very strategic functions in our body and in the body of Christ around the world. He starts out by talking about foundational gifts, and then he moves into some gifts that for all the centuries will be used by the body of Christ. Look what he says. He gave gifts to men. And the four gifts he mentions, he gave the gift of an apostle. He gave some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and some to be teachers. And some hold that those last things should go together. We'll talk about that in a minute. It says, what are we supposed to do? We're to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity of the faith. Now stick with me. A whole lot of you have the idea that there are clergy... And then there's the rest of you. In our church family, we've seen fit to spring loose some of our gifted members and we pay them for their services. Like in our church, we call them the church staff. One of the dominant ideas in our culture is that there are professionals, that there are professionals that take care of this religious thing, this Jesus thing, and that's not what the scripture's teaching. What the scriptures teach, remember I told you that there is grace that was given, there were gifts that were given. Paul says, first of all, there were some apostles. Now, in the scripture, there's three kinds of apostles. One, there's an apostle that was an earthly witness to the ministry of Jesus when he was here on earth, his death, his resurrection. Acts chapter 1 tells you about those apostles. They were apostles that actually experienced the physical ministry of Jesus. And they, they lay a ground. There's 12 of them with Matthias added in chapter 1 of Acts. And they lay this eyewitness, historical witness, authoritative witness to the earthly ministry of Jesus. That's one of the ways that the word apostle, which means a designated sent one, is used in the New Testament. The second way it's used is the apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says he was an apostle that was born late. What it means is the Lord Jesus let the apostle Paul see him as the resurrected Christ. 
When he was called, when Jesus called him on the Damascus Road, Paul saw a vision of the resurrected Jesus. At the end of 2 Corinthians, when Paul was caught up into the third heaven, he caught a vision of Jesus, just like John the Apostle did in the early chapters of Revelation. Very important. The Apostle Paul, by those revelations, was placed on the same level of foundational authority. Thirdly, there's apostles like Silas, like Barnabas, like Luke, like James, the Lord's half-brother, who are those that are ordained by the Lord And they're especially gifted to found churches, to build churches, to declare the gospel, to lay the foundation. Now, it's very important for us to understand how they were used in the New Testament because there was great authority with the early first century apostle. Like the apostle Paul one time would say, when I get there, the Holy Spirit's going to be upon me. And even if I'm not there, the Holy Spirit's speaking through me and I might not be present among you, but you need to listen to what I'm saying. There's tremendous authority in the Apostle Paul because he was an apostle. And today, we have those who claim that apostolic authority. I think we need to be very careful of that because Ephesians 2 says that it was the apostles and prophets that laid the foundation with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. My personal belief is that the word apostle needs to be kept for that foundational time that foundational early first century, eyewitnesses to Christ, those who saw the resurrected Jesus, those who became responsible for the gift of this revelation. Now, another function of an apostle was to go across culture like Paul did when he went into Philippi, into Macedonia, and found new churches. Today in the church, there are those that are using the word apostle to be that kind of a person, that person who's gifted by the Spirit to go into another people group, to go to another area of the country, to go into another segment of of our society and found churches or go into the world. And when they go there, they'll stay for a little while, then they'll move on. And that's a legitimate Holy Spirit-given gifted function. And some of the people today in the body of Christ are using that kind of terminology. As long as we're careful to not give that person the authority of the New Testament, then I don't have any trouble with that. As your pastor teacher, I want to warn you, I think when I call myself the Apostle Dave, there's authority in that. And I think we need to be very careful because I'm not going to ever call myself that because this needs to be your authority. And when you build buildings, you don't keep building the foundation over and over again. You build off the foundation but you don't keep building it. I think the word apostle relates in the scripture to those that were inspired by the Holy Spirit to give the completed revelation of the New Testament. I think the evangelist is the one, which is the third gift that's given, that down through the church age is constantly proclaiming the gospel, founding churches, training God's people in the good news. And I think it's the evangelist that carries on the ministry of the first century apostle. I think that's how the evangelist is related to the apostle that's really committed in the first century to go and proclaim the gospel and found new churches. Second of all, the second word is prophet. Now some of you like, some of you have been taught about spiritual gifts. And the idea of a prophet, you have the idea that a prophet It's someone who exhorts. And there's truth in that. A prophet is a forth teller. In our society, we use the word of a prophet. They're usually a little bit brusque person. They're not an oil person. They're a confrontational person. And some of you use that as an excuse. You hurt people. 
And you say, well, I have the gift of a prophet. And what you do, you're just abrupt. Now, listen to me really carefully. Because you say, I have the gift of a prophet. Not all the prophets were abrupt. Jeremiah bawled his eyes out every time he spoke. Just about. He was the weeping prophet. Jonah was a hesitant prophet. He didn't even want to do what he was supposed to do. Ezekiel did really weird things. He made little miniature siege works and all kinds of symbolic things. He did a whole lot of symbolic things. So he's a very different... In other words, there's not a personality in the Old Testament of a prophet. So be very careful. There's all, so I want you to be careful. The idea of a prophet in the scripture, what is the one defining thing? He receives or she receives power from the Holy Spirit to give revelation. To teach, one, they, they're able to predict the future. That's part of the gift. Not always the essential part of the gift, but it is under the Old Testament idea of a prophet. And the New Testament was founded with Jews. They would, you mention the word prophet, they'd automatically think in terms of predicting. Because Moses could predict the history of his people. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says if a prophet's among you and he makes predictions, they have to make an early prediction and then they have to make a later prediction. And you ought to be able to test the prophecy they made about a near event that was happening. If it didn't come true, then it said just forget about them. Now, in the church today, there's a lot of people that say, I have the gift of a prophecy. And they'll say, like, this event in Israel is the fulfillment of blah, 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 blah. I can't tell you the number of times it's proven those prophets, that wasn't it. So I think what's safer in the New Testament, I think when Paul mentioned prophets to the Ephesians, what he meant was not someone who had a personality that was confrontational, that was exhorting, that had urges from the Spirit that they could say to you, I think this is what God is leading. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's talking about someone, all different kinds of personalities that were filled with the Holy Spirit and they gave new revelation that enabled us to have a completed Bible. Now, I do think that there's elements of this gift. Just like I share with you, the apostle, we need missionaries today or those that go cross-culturally that found churches. We need some of you to be gifted to get churches started. So we need what is one of the elements of the apostolic gift. We need that today. But let's be sure that we think clearly about authority structures. And this book is what has the authority, not individuals. Second of all, when we think of prophecy, there's a major idea that there were New Testament prophets who could blow it. Grudem is a theologian that taught at Trinity. Now he teaches Trinity. And he holds that there's a New Testament idea of prophecy where you can blow it. I think we need to be very careful about that. Because I think there is a gift that's illumination from your spirit. But I've seen a lot of believers where a prophet supposedly will say, God's leading me. God's Holy Spirit spoke to me. And I'm going to share with you, if I look at you and say, you know, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you so-and-so and so-and-so, that's heavy. Like, can you say, well, no. God didn't lead me to do that. I think that's a bunch of... And to be honest with you, I can use a great big example. Francis Schaeffer. Of all the people in the world that I would say is a prophet, Francis Schaeffer, in my lifetime, I would say had the prophetic mantle. He's the one that predicted the world views and, and all the stuff that would happen in our society about secularism. But you know, one of the last things that Francis Schaeffer wrote was calling for force. And he wrote a manifesto that called for God's people. They needed to grab. And he talked about the German battles against the Roman Catholic Church. And he called for violence. And I want to share with you, when I study the Lord Jesus, like the government's supposed to take the sword. But you as God's people, as a church, I'm not going to ever teach you that you're going to build the body of Christ. And you're going to conquer in the name of Jesus with a physical sword. And that's tough. When we're being attacked... But there's a difference in Romans 13 with the authority the government has and the authority that God's people have. And I think Dr. Chafer, I love him dearly. He's a great mentor. He guided me in the faith. But in that particular area, his writings led 
to violence, to some of God's people beginning to say that violence is acceptable in the name of the cross. And I think that was where we need to go back to the scripture. Dr. Schaefer had abilities that had profound insight, but he himself would be the last one of the viewers here today that would say, take my writings on the same level as God's Holy Spirit. I'm just giving you an example of how I think we need to be careful about saying this person's a prophet. The first century church, it was the apostles and the prophets that completed the New Testament. Now you say, well, hey, what about the church today? Do we need people that have those gifts? Yeah, the gifts that we need of leadership gifts, and these aren't all the leadership gifts, but I want to close with this. There's a gifted evangelist. That's not just a Billy Graham. Some of you in this room are gifted evangelists. What does it mean? You have a hunger to be with unbelieving people. When you are with God's family too long, you get ants in your pants. You want to get out there where the action is. When we announce there's going to be a Bill Glass prison crusade, you want to go on that. You want to share the gospel. Some of you, man, you can hardly wait to the Sunday when we present the gospel. When you say, man, I want to be the one that presents the gospel, and I want to invite these kids to come to Jesus. And when you do, this is really important, when you do, people respond. And it's a great gift from the Holy Spirit. The word evangelist means a proclaimer of the good news. As a Bible church, we are top-heavy on the teaching gift and not enough on the evangelist gift. And in order for a church family to be balanced, it needs both the evangelist and the pastor-teacher to balance it. I often want to say this. Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Don't you say, well, I don't have the gift of an evangelist. I don't have to tell anybody about Christ. All of us need to tell people about Christ, whether we're gifted specially with grace to be a fruit picker in God's family. It doesn't make any difference. We're all to do the work of an evangelist. You got that? Then Paul bounces it with, after we have babies born, then we need to have pastors and teachers. And I close with this. The word pastor is that we need shepherds. And some may have the idea, well, David, you're gifted to be the pastor. You know what? There's no way our church family, there's no way just looking at this crowd this morning that I can know what every one of you sheep are doing. You know what a shepherd does? Those of you that are in the cattle industry, number one, they feed the sheep. And I can do that on Sunday morning, but I can't do all of it. Needs a lot more than me feeding the sheep. You know what else my rancher friends do? They always observe the sheep or the cattle. Every day they go out and observe the cattle. You know what? I can't observe every one of you to see how you're doing. Now listen to me as I close. If we have an idea that I'm the gifted pastor teacher and I'm the shepherd, then you know what? Some of you as sheep are going to be hurt and you're not going to be fed because I'm not strong enough or wise enough or have energy enough to be able to shepherd all of your lives. And that's why it's so important. The Apostle Paul didn't talk about one shepherd. He talked about those, just like there would be many gifted evangelists, we need to pray that there'll be many of you that are gifted shepherds. What does that mean? It means you are concerned. We should be able to have a shepherd where every single person in our family is in a smaller sheepfold with shepherds that take care of them. And you say, well, Dave, how can I know if I have that gift? Do you care that someone hasn't shown up for a long time? Do you check on them? If someone starts wandering away from the Lord, you see them going into other areas that will be destructive. Does the Holy Spirit working hard say, man, you need to go and find them. You need to help them get back on the right path. 
Do you have a hunger to find out what God's word says so you can feed it? Those are evidences of your pastoring gift. Paul's not talking about position here. He's not talking about a gift of an elder. Some of you ladies can have pastoring skills where you care for those that are sheep and you're sensitive to their needs. We close with the idea of teacher. The specific activity of a teacher is to teach God's word like I am this morning. You say, Dave, is it one gift, the pastor teacher? I think if you look at all the uses of this construction in the New Testament, the way that that construction goes is all the teachers need to teach. But not all the teachers, the way that that construction works is not all the teachers will be pastors. There will be those in the body of Christ that are really gifted to teach God's word. But they don't have the leadership abilities to pastor the flock. One of the things the shepherd does is lead the flock. So they won't have necessarily the passion to be involved in a local church where they lead the flock. So all of pastors need to be teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. And that will help some of you to understand that in the body of Christ, we have some of those that are really gifted teachers. But they're not really good pastors. They're not good shepherds. They don't have the feeling and the compassion that we want to have. Now, all of us need to be growing in those things, but it helps us to understand one another's gifts. The Apostle Paul says those are the foundational gifts. The apostles and prophets with Jesus give us the New Testament. The evangelists down through the church ages proclaim the gospel, equip God's people to have a passion for reaching lost souls, go to the mission field, keep that mission before us. The pastor teachers take the babies that are born into God's family and help them to grow. And I want you, because I've spoken to you this morning, to start thinking about what's my gift. Every one of you has a gift. You say, Dave, how do I know what my gift is? What are you doing in the body of Christ to build it up? How do I find out the gift? Number one, you need to start doing things. Another way you can find out what upsets you in the body of Christ. What I'm telling you is every one of you will be gifted. And one of the ways you'll know what your gift is, what troubles you. What bugs you? And rather than getting angry about what bugs you, I would challenge you to take what bugs you as a nudge from the Holy Spirit and start coming up with simple things you can do to satisfy that need. And start doing some of those simple things. You know what will happen? God will bless this group like he's never blessed it before because every one of you has a gift. 